0: Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Childhood History and Critique. I'm Pat Ryan, and this time I have a conversation with Holly Brewer, Burke Chair of American History at the University of Maryland. Many of you will recall that she is the author of the prize-winning 2005 book By Birth or Consent, Children, Law, and the Anglo-American Revolution in Authority from the University of North Carolina Press. Our conversation was recorded in January of 2015 and has been divided into two sections. Part one brings with it a summary of the book and details of what experiences inspired the project. But Holly turned the tables on me and asked me about my work, too, and this led to a sharing of observations and stories about the challenges of reading, childhood, and age historically. Along the way, we get a preview of the work that Holly is completing this year. It might be helpful for for folks if, if you were able to sort of summarize the central arguments of by birth or consent.
1: What I argue in by birth or consent is that childhood is a creation of democracy, that crucial to the development of a viable democratic political institution is a distinction between childhood and adulthood, and particularly um, in terms of the ability to offer consent. Because if you want to have a system of government that is based on the consent of the governed, you need to have a viable norm about when consent is valid and obviously an infant in its mother's arms cannot consent and so the question becomes when is consent viable or valuable and um not only many 17th and 18th century british thinkers about democratic political thought um, consider these questions but so did most of the american revolutionaries as they pushed democracy farther, they had to deal very, very closely with questions of who can consent and that, the answer to their questions, helped define a distinction between childhood and adulthood. And not just with respect to the ability to consent, but with respect to the ability to be fully responsible for crimes, with respect to the ability to be on a jury, to witness in a courtroom, to marry, to give consent to a sexual act. To sign a contract, to manage property, to labor under uh, in, in certain kinds of industries where your life might be at risk or your de- ability to develop impends. Virtually, you know, every aspect of a person's legal identity became framed by questions of of what does it mean to give consent, and when are you capable of giving that consent.
0: Can you can you tell us about something about your academic background and and how you came to to write by birth or consent?
1: I was an undergraduate at Harvard, and while there, I took a class called Justice with um, a professor named Michael Sandel, who's now very famous, mm-hmm. but was not at that point. And it was one of those classes where you uh, read all these classics of especially democratic theory, from ancient Greek ideas right up to John Rawls and Robert Nozick. As I was reading carefully through all these dozens upon dozens of primary sources, that the professor, when he got to the early modern period and what we would really now call democratic theory, as with Locke and Hobbes, that he, he was always talking about the adult male who was making choices to uh-huh. enter a society, right? We're not talking about any other members of society. And, but that all the texts of the early modern period in particular, were talking about children a lot. Uh-huh. But the professor never mentioned them. It was just like they were completely absent and women weren't mentioned much. But I looked at the world around me and I saw, well, I saw women, but I also saw, saw children as part of society. And it really puzzled me why the professor wouldn't mention children, and that nobody seemed to. And I started circling (laughs) mentions of childhood in these texts and wondering what was going on. Why were children talked about so much? And why do we somehow erase intellectually that focus of the Enlightenment and of early democratic theory? So that was the initial source of the question. When I got to graduate school at UCLA in early American history, I thought to myself, um, I really wanted to to begin to figure out why children were important and what this emphasis and the theory that was so important to the American Revolutionaries meant for real children. And so I framed this question, and at first I was going to try to explore it through, I don't know, literature and especially, th- especially things that children had written, but there was nothing really for the 18th century. So it was really hard for me to get at that and Trying to do elaborate reader response theory for uh, children's literature, you you know, looking at what they read was Mm -hmm. really difficult, even though it was really exciting for me to realize that a lot of children's literature of the 18th century was actually written in response to John Locke's call for a literature directed towards children. So there there was that link, but it was really tenuous. And um, a professor named John Brewer, who does early modern British history, was at UCLA at that point, no relation to me, I should add. And he was the one who directed me to, who encouraged me to look at legal records, to find the answers to my questions, which was wonderful. And I should also, I mean, if I'm mentioning professors, I should also mention uh, Joyce Appleby, who uh, was so into political thought, and she really helped me develop. A lot of my critique, as did Carol Payman in the political science department um, and Richard Ashcroft, who worked particularly on Locke. Gary Nash was wonderful and amazing in terms of social history. And Ruth Block was um, particularly astute in terms of helping me think through issues related to family. And in taking my ideas seriously at a period when a lot of people really laughed, ridiculed the idea of studying children as that they were just sort of non entities, not historically important, not they they were things they were subjects that things happened to, not not actors themselves, and that their status was somehow static outside. It was something that sociologists paid attention to, not yeah,
0: historians. Yeah, and psychologists outside That's just fixed, yeah. That's a really familiar experience for right. people working in, in new fields.
1: Right. So I had this great experience at UCLA but I and I got pushed in the direction of the law at that point, but it was still it was still difficult to go forward with these questions and I remember in particular Gary Nash during my prospectus defense. I remember distinctly him looking at me and saying, It's great, you know, you're right, absolutely right. Nobody has asked this question before about whether these political theory debates have anything to do with the lives of real children in the in the 17th and 18th century? But maybe there's nothing to find. Maybe it's just a ridiculous question and a kind of worthless one, and you have to be prepared for that. And in fact, I believe he thought I wasn't going to find anything.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's 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 fascinating. I mean, and and really stunning to me, uh, partly because I'm so much you know obviously on side here even if we were talking about the major political uh, texts um, situating the the domestic as a basis for political authority and the position of, of dependence is so critical to the entire argument and meaning of independence. Right. For, for, for the second half of the 17th century, English political right. thought into the 18th century, I mean to not recognize that that positions not only women and servants, but particularly children in specific ways.
1: Right. And that those definitions could be moving.
0: Um, Yeah. And that they were moving them to attack the crown in specific ways that would leave their own sources of authority untouched.
1: Right. And that in order to come up with an alternative to hereditary status as a basis of authority, you had to be able to argue for consent, but not only, not just consent of anyone, because if you said consent of anyone, then you could take the consent of a baby as binding, you know, yeah, I'd agreed to have me hold it, or I I don't know, you put an X at the bottom of a contract when they're four, and they're bound for life. So crucial to early democratic theory was formulating the notion of meaningful consent, that you understood the nature of the commitment you were making, and only then was it binding, that you had reason enough to fully understand so that that became crucial to my argument that I was the first one to make it. I don't believe anyone had made that argument before. And even when I found all the pieces, I still remember. And you know, maybe maybe this was kind of a front of Gary Nash's to encourage better research. But he would not believe me when I went in and told him that you only had to be 14 years old to be on a jury in 18th century Virginia. I had to actually go and bring him the book, which luckily e- UCLA Law Library let me, text, let me check out. And because this is before easy PDFs, and and I brought it to him, and I showed him the Virginia Guide for Justice of the Peace. It showed you only had to be 14 and own significant property. And only then would he believe me because for him, and I actually, I, I've done a lot of thinking about why there was this sort of purposeful blindness almost on the part of a lot of social historians who you would think would be the most aware of these issues. And I think it's because they were so influenced by modern demography or dem- demographic techniques and sociolog- sociological techniques mm-hmm. for measuring the past and they developed, they used models that were developed to understand the 20th century and population, you know, dynamics, et cetera. And then they fit them onto the past. And many of these models would say things like you needed to be 15 years old to marry, for example, or, or whatever.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But there were a lot, you know, that 21 years old is the definite, you know, the distinction between childhood and adulthood. So they were using these models as a kind of grid to make sense of the past. They couldn't, they were sort of so much a part of the a priori image they were imposing and of the way they were reconstructing early American and early modern European society that they couldn't take them away. It was yeah. It was a part of their presuppositions.
0: Well, if you think about, and again, I want to be careful with this parallel because it's, the, the parallel I'm going to make is... is Uh, politically loaded and I don't really mean to be uh, irresponsible with it. If you were to talk about distinctions that are part of the creation of the modern state age grading permeates today our institutions in a way that is as or more profound than any other distinction but largely invisible. So we've had a battle, a, a long legal battle of liberation around other distinctions but the anchor point for those battles and victories in those battles has been the strengthening of age grading. Right. And so when you suggest a distinction that's politically important today is historical and not just given, and that's potentially disruptive for our self-understanding. Yep. I,
1: and we're I, you're right. We are very unself-conscious about it, and it's. As a a mother of three children, I'm made all the more aware of it. As I think about, for example, the complete lack of rights they have almost in school. Um, My daughter's in a high school where she has to wear an ID badge all the time. And if they're not exactly in the room they're supposed to be in at any point, they get punished really harshly. I mean, like, if she's out to go to the bathroom without a note at a, you know, at a crucial time. And here she has a senior college, an honor student, really good kid, uh, and it's it's very repressive. And they're allowed to, you know, by Supreme Court decisions in the United States. Um, there is no privacy. They can always search lockers. She's not allowed to bring even, like, a regular kitchen knife to school in her lunchbox. That's considered a criminal criminal act and could lead to suspension. Just, you know, just a regular one you would use to spread butter.
0: Yeah, it, it leads into there are, there are absurdities in age grading, but at the same time, what's profound about it, and it's to, to go back to the history, in an essay on human understanding, part of what Locke is trying to articulate that has continued to be articulated is this possibility human development is connected to how we become reasonable agents Right, And you can't exactly. dispense the consenting adult or the reasonable agent. You can't just remove that from the entire political culture that we exist in. Exactly.
1: So, Tell me a little bit, can you just really quickly tell me a little bit about your own work? I have not read your book, and I know it's an medieval childhood, but what do you argue?
0: Um, Master-servant childhood is the first part of an attempt to sort of broadly sketch the discursive structure of, of modern childhood, and so I, I wrote this short book that tries to answer the question, what is childhood prior to modernity in response to, I think, a, a bit of a, a misreading of Aries's centuries of childhood, the you know, mo- most quoted line, well, there are two things, that childhood didn't exist in the Middle Ages, and, uh, and that children were little adults. Mm-hmm. And and part of what I'm doing is I just go through and I synthesize ancient, medieval, uh, and early modern literature that's on children, and I use um, the history of the English language as a sort of skeletal structure to make an argument that the the meaning of childhood prior to modernity is located in the master servant relation. But to make sense of that, you have to understand that. Prior to modernity, there were uh, fundamentally different understandings of time, a double sense of time, mm-hmm. and the shades of meanings of things like age and reason and agency, and things that have been collapsed into the individual weren't collapsed into the individual. Mm. And the upshot of that is that things that we carry into our reading of early modern or medieval texts is you have to work hard to try to recover a child Adult distinction prior to modernity. Um, so one of the things that makes master servant childhood or pre modern childhood differently is that it's childhood without adulthood. But not because all peasants were children. That's not the point. It is that a master servant dualism is very different than a child adult dualism. Right. So, yeah. You know, I mean, one way to, one way that I would say it is, and I would use words. If you see the word competency in an English early modern text, it most likely is describing an adequate amount of property, maybe legal authority. Exactly. If if you look in the early 19th century, certainly by the mid-19th century, and you just see this modifier competency, which by now has more frequently become a noun, you are probably talking about an an adequate uh, property of the self, that is the ability of an individual to make Right. Reasonable decisions. Right. And what's hard about that transition is all of the other terms have shifted. Hmm. So all the other relevant terms, virtue has changed its meanings. Reason has changed its meaning. You right. know. So what we're talking about is a is a massive ontological shift, mm-hmm. a massive epistemological shift, and it's extremely hard to not do damage to what comes prior to where we're located in time whenever we talk about it.
1: Right. Firstly, with... I argue, I mean, I don't argue that as fully, but that fits very much with my book, right? Oh, right on. I mean, I'm just thinking particularly, for example, of my evidence on criminal responsibility in the 16th, 17th, in fact, most of the 18th century... Age was not an issue
0: for the most part. That's right.
1: And But see, this was. Absolutely. And, you know, it took me a long time when I was actually doing my writing my book. It took me a long time to realize what we're just talking about, because I also was walking past it. I wasn't expecting to see it. And it was only in the face of incredible absence in terms of what I thought I would be able to find when I asked a particular kind of question that, I finally faced up to the fact of what was so different. It took the absence, though, the absence of mentions of age, that it just was not an issue in criminal responsibility for the most part.
0: It's It's a silence. And, you know, a lot of the works that I might cite to criticize in this way have other virtues, and I've learned a lot from them, so I really want to put that out there. But there are so many works where... Historians, and I've done this work myself, I think we all have, we'll go into the documents, we'll strip the records. We will go and cross-reference to a set of other documents to pull out that piece of data that seems really important to us. It mm-hmm. might be the age of participants, and we'll create our own grid, right. uh, what everybody's age was, what their sex was, re- re- whether re- their re- pre- was. Yeah. Yeah. And, and and that's all important. That's a social scientific technique of record stripping. But we still have to step back and say, do the documents themselves, in how they're organized and what the discourse is, do they give precedence to that category? Right. And so many times historians have been interested in the age of the participants more than the participants have been interested in their age.
1: Exactly. No, exactly.
0: You have been listening to part one of a conversation between Holly Brewer and Pat Ryan on Childhood, History, and Critique. Part two can be found on the website of the Society for the History of Children and Youth.